This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. My guest today is John Kempf, the author of the recently released Quality Agriculture. A farmer, teacher, and entrepreneur from Northeast Ohio, John has spent more than 15 years developing a nutrition and farm management program that quickly restores soil health and maximizes plant resistance to disease and insects, while reducing costs and increasing profits for farmers who adopt these methods. Already applying these processes to millions of acres of farmland, his current mission is for these regenerative models to become adopted globally by 2040. During our interview today, John shares with us the history of how he developed these processes, as well as how existing food policies and intellectual property systems hamper farmers' ability to steward the land and increase the health and resilience of our communities. By holistically meeting the needs of farmers and focusing on the results, rather than the methods, John leads farmers down the path of regenerative agriculture and a more abundant future. Enjoy this conversation with John, and I'll join you again after. Then, John, can you give us a bit of your biography and background, and we can take the conversation from there? I grew up on a family fruit and vegetable farm in Northeast Ohio in the snow belt south of Lake Erie. So we're about, uh, I grew up about 30 miles from the Pennsylvania border and about 15 to 20 miles from Lake Erie. So all the way up in the Northeast corner. And we had a conventional family fruit and vegetable farm growing tomatoes and cantaloupe, cucumbers, zucchini were our four primary crops that we're growing at this point. We're completely conventional using lots of pesticide applications. My dad was the pesticide distributor for the local region, and I was a licensed private pesticide applicator when I was 16. And we used fairly intense pesticide applications because in this environment, in the snowbelt region, we have fairly high humidity during the summer months, lots of rainfall, 40 plus inches of annual rainfall we've been averaging for the last decade or more now. And all of that accumulated to give us lots of disease and insect pressure And then eventually we got to the point where we had such an accumulation of pesticides in our soil profile that we were no longer successful. Plants became so unhealthy and so attractive to various insects and and such a favorable food source for diseases that we couldn't manage them successfully with pesticides anymore. So it was really, I had this quite profound experience in 2004 where we had a three-year period, 2002, three, and four, when we had tremendous crop loss to a number of different diseases and insects. We lost over 70% of our crops several years in a row. And in 2004, the third year of this three-year period, we planted what had been formerly been two neighboring fields that were farmed completely differently. One of them had been farmed in, with vegetables and intense pesticide applications. The second had been a dairy farm hay, small grain, corn rotation without the pesticide applications. We planted these two fields into cantaloupe. And at harvest time, the soil with the historical pesticide applications had 80% of the leaves infected with powdery mildew. And the new soil, there was no powdery mildew. You couldn't find any on the leaves. In fact, it was so pronounced that there were healthy vines growing right in among the unhealthy vines. So that really caught my attention. And, you know, our culture is based on having a caring for the landscape, having a caring and practicing stewardship of the land and of our livestock and our animals. And it really brought home that the agricultural system that we've adopted that has become the mainstream in much of the developed world is 
an agricultural management system that does not really embrace stewardship. We have kind of this cognitive dissonance where we have, for many of us growers and farmers, what brings us into agriculture in the first place is this desire to be connected to life and living processes. But on the other hand, we embrace tools and use mindsets that are very based on a warfare paradigm or warfare mentality of search and destroy, identify specific pathogens or bugs and figure out how you can kill them. And if the first weapon of choice isn't successful, then you simply get a bigger bomb. And I realized that we're going down a pathway that really doesn't align very well with our core values. And I sought to try to understand why we have these two plants that and these two crops that are the same variety, they're planted the same day and managed the same, but we get two completely different outcomes. And it was seeing those results that led you to this desire to explore the soil? Well, the one difference that we could see that we could point to from our own knowledge and experience was that the one soil, the one field had a history of intense pesticide applications and the other did not. But I really wanted to understand kind of what is, what's going on inside these plants? What allows one plant to be resistant to powdery mildew when the next plant that's two feet away is susceptible, when it's the same variety and has been managed from our perspective, has been managed much in much the same manner. And what I learned, this is a very dramatic oversimplification, but in essence, I learned that plants have an immune system much the same way that we do. Each one of us has our own immune systems, but we know that our immune systems don't all work equally well. Some people become ill with the first cold or flu bug that comes along, and other people practically never become ill. And the only difference between those two is how well their immune system has been supported with nutrition and how well their microbiome has been supported. And this is true over the course of their entire lifetime, not just the last few days or few weeks, but over their entire life. In fact, from even before they were born. And the same concept holds true of plants as well, that plants also have this innate immune system that allows them to be completely resistant to diseases and insects when they're supported with the right nutrition and when they're surrounded with the right microbial microbiome. So this really causes us to rethink the way that we are growing plants to focus on optimizing health and quality rather than simply balancing nutrition to increase yields to the highest degree possible. And you were going through all of this, as you say, in the early 2000s. How long did it take you to do this research into the health and livelihood of plants and this plant immune system, and then kind of expand your work from there? In the winter months immediately following the 2004 growing season, I spent six months doing intense, in-depth research, speaking to people from all over the country, trying to learn as much as I could. And the learning curve was very steep, but it was very theoretical at that point. And the advantage that I had, and I owe a tremendous debt of gratitude to my parents for this, is as I started learning about what was happening and what was going on in these agricultural landscapes, started speaking to our family about it. And my father gave me pretty much a blank slate to do almost whatever I wanted with in terms of nutrition management. Uh, I had the responsibility of doing all the fertigation and foliar applications of both nutrients and pesticides at this point on our farm. So I was given pretty much a blank slate to do whatever I wanted to with, he was obviously providing oversight as the season progressed, of course. And 
that's when we started actually putting it into practice and testing these theories to see how well would they actually work in turning our farm around. And we had some dramatic successes that were a lot of fun. They took a lot of effort and a lot of focus. But by 2006, we went completely pesticide-free on that farm and have been completely pesticide-free ever since. And it is, as of this moment, and has been pretty much continuously since 2006, one of the highest yielding and highest production fruit and vegetable farms in the local region. So within just two growing seasons, you moved from what we might think of as traditional chemical agriculture to pesticide-free agriculture. That's correct. We completely discontinued the use of pesticides. In essentially, it was actually it was almost a, a one growing season transition because 2004 was a complete disaster and a train wreck. 2005 was intense experimentation. And by the spring of 2006, we decided to jump off the cliff, so to speak, and discontinue all pesticide use. Mm -hmm. And um, there's, there's a lot to be said for jumping off the cliff. <laughs> <laughs> it is scary. And certainly today in our consulting work at Advancing Eco-Agriculture, this is not a pathway that I advise to growers very often. I tell them that we have to earn the right to discontinue using pesticides. But there's this little dirty little secret of pesticide applications is that when you apply a pesticide to a crop, it actually greatly increases that plant's susceptibility to future diseases and future pests in the same growing season. So if you cannot use them and discontinue using them, it actually speeds up your recovery very quickly. So there's an increasing number of growers who have been willing to experiment on part of their farm or some of their crops to just discontinue the use of pesticides altogether. And I'm, I'm just amazed at these natural ecosystems, incredible resiliency and how quickly they recover. We can have some of these very degraded ecosystems and in a year or two, they are, have completely turned around and soil and plant health is in a very different space from where it was just a year prior. Now, are you combining this discontinuing use of pesticides with a change in your nutrient practices, integrated pest management, tilling practices, anything like that? Or is it simply the discontinuing of the pesticides is your primary change? That can be a significant change. But in, in most of the farms that we work with, we don't start by discontinuing pesticides. Instead, our beginnings are focusing on managing nutrition differently and managing biology differently. And so when we think about managing nutrition differently, what exactly does that mean? Mainstream agronomy has focused on managing plant nutrition with a singular emphasis on yield. The parameters for determining how much fertilizer needs to be applied, how much nitrogen or phosphorus or potassium needs to be applied is for many commercial commodity crops, purely a mathematical equation to say our desired yield is X number of bushels. We know that it takes this many pounds of a given nutrient to achieve this yield. And therefore, it's, it's purely math that is completely yield-based. The problem with this approach is there is no consideration for quality. There's no consideration for the degree of immunity. And this doesn't have to be an either-or choice. You don't have to choose to have either high yields or disease and insect resistance. You can have both. To achieve both... You simply balance plant nutrition with an emphasis on quality and immunity 
in addition to yield. So instead of focusing exclusively on nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium fertilization, we broaden the list significantly. We look at selenium and molybdenum and nickel and cobalt and manganese and zinc and iron, copper, boron, this broad array of different trace minerals. We look at what's happening with soil biology. So it requires a much more systemic approach to plant nutrition. And the good news is that it is possible to actually produce higher yields with healthy plants than it is with the typical, with plants that have, that are anticipated to have lots of pesticide applications applied to them. Because the bottom line is when you have really healthy plants that have a robust immune system and they're photosynthesizing really well, you can't stop the yields from happening. The yields are by default going to be much better than plants which are stressed and that are unhealthy. Do you have any thoughts or insights into why agriculture has moved towards that focus on NPK and the math of yields compared to like a whole systems plan for farming? That's a really big conversation, but I think ultimately it ultimately comes down to a cheap food policy at the governmental level. And that has been, well, let me say that our food system, there are a number of different contributing factors, but a cheap food policy has compounded and amplified all of those factors. We could talk about capitalism and the desire to be the low cost producer and the most efficient producer. Those can be motivating factors at the agribusiness level. But when you speak to farmers as and growers, as individuals, the reality is that all of us have this desire to leave the land better for the next generation than when we inherited it. And all of us have this, we have the desire to do a good job. There's farmers aren't deliberately and consciously intending to degrade the environment and to degrade ecosystems and to produce unhealthy food. That's a result that is happening today as a result of our agribusiness ecosystem and the policies that are in place. My understanding, my perception at this moment in time, the way that I would answer your question is to say that a policy of cheap food of externalized costs to the environment and to the ecosystems is really what has accelerated this process for the last seven or eight decades. It's a conversation that I had many years with Dr. Laura Jackson about our industrialized food systems. And it's one of the things that she said was that from the grocery store to the grower and everywhere in between, there's this system that everyone's kind of caught in and that trying to make adjustments and changes just becomes difficult because for many farmers, it's the you know, cost of leasing land, of owning all of your equipment, then, you know, the seed house needing to be able to get viable seeds to folks. And just that all these changes that have happened over time have just resulted in the world that we live in, that it's not necessarily any kind of like a nefarious or an otherwise planned system, but it's just where we're at right now. And it's trying to move and change that is this kind of monumental task. But there are amazing folks like yourself and other organizations working on sustainable ag that are showing that this is possible and at a very broad scale. In our work producing crops that are resistant to diseases and insects, it is imperative to identify the source cause. What is the reason this fungi or bacteria is expressing itself as a pathogen? What is the reason this insect is becoming a pest for the crop that we're seeking to produce? And I've tried to apply that same type of thinking to our agricultural landscapes and business ecosystems and to identify what are the source causes of how, how have we arrived at this place where we are today. And I mentioned government policy, that's certainly a significant contributing factor, but I think there's another 
that is often missed. And that is our intellectual property protection structure, where to have something that you can patent and profit from, which is the motivation that our system is set up for. And to have that, you need to identify a specific mechanism and a specific mode of action. So this naturally leads to the development of products with very narrow and known modes of action or microbial products, let's say a bacteria. So we, we have this phenomena right now where there are companies producing biocontrols and microbial products for application in the field that we have uh, this disease and we've identified this organism that does this bacteria that produces these precise metabolites that shuts down this disease. I appreciate their efforts and I think they're doing great work, but the bottom line is that this is not how natural ecosystems work. Natural ecosystems, there is never a function of one organism producing an antidote of effect to another organism. It's never that linear. There is always this complex ecosystems where there are communities of organisms that enhance certain diseases or suppress certain diseases. And as a result, the, the foundation of natural agricultural systems is all based on this, this ecosystem's perspective of what are all the various contributing factors in the ecosystem. And this approach doesn't lend itself to intellectual property protection. So when we look at our history of how did we arrive at having greater than 90% adoption of genetically modified crops with Roundup application or other herbicide applications, it's because that was the structure that facilitated intellectual property protection. That ability to patent and profit from seeds and agricultural technologies? The capacity to patent and profit from a single identified mechanism rather than a group of unknown and unidentified mechanisms. So if it were possible to say that we have identified this community of 50 microbial species that when applied together and when present in these populations, they suppress the development of these 50 diseases and they've been documented and known to be very effective. If that could be protected for a period of time to allow a company to profit from that and developing that, now we could develop tools that embrace an ecosystem's perspective rather than deliberately move in the opposite direction. So our intellectual property protection framework began originally from a very mechanistic worldview. And our agriculture today is trapped in this rather mechanistic worldview of specific inputs for specific outcomes, when in reality, that is not how natural ecosystems function at all. And so now the role of agriculture educators and others who are working in this field is to continue pushing that conversation back to the way that natural ecosystems function and, and how that can benefit farmers and growers? What I discovered when I started seeking the answers to try to understand what were the differences between these two cantaloupe crops, why, why was one resistant to powder mildew and why was the other one susceptible, I soon learned that there was an incredible amount of knowledge and information on plant immunity and on ecosystem functions that was not widely known. In fact, it's relatively safe to say that it's virtually unknown in the larger agricultural community. When you speak to farmers in, in most of production agriculture, if you were to ask them a question, do you know if plants have an immune system or not? 
um, the common answer would be that we don't know because it's a non-existent conversation. No one talks about it. And the reason no one has, and I'm, I'm, I understand that I'm speaking in very broad generalities, but the reason so few people have heard about it or are familiar with this conversation is because it is not where the economic incentives have existed for agribusiness. And I believe our responsibility today, what I personally am really passionate about is I'm passionate about having these regenerative models of agriculture become the mainstream globally by 2040. And this, I believe, is a very realistic and achievable goal. For all of us who desire to see this goal become a reality, then we need to recognize that, yes, there are additional things that it would be nice to learn and nice to know, but the reality is that we already have enough knowledge. We have enough information. We simply need to apply and implement that which is already known on scale. And I believe that our responsibility, specifically my responsibility as an educator is, and as a teacher, is not just to share all the information and nuts and bolts of how to do it, but specifically to create an image of what is possible, to inspire the imagination, and to really communicate the incredible potential that exists in our agricultural ecosystems that we don't even grasp anymore. The reality is that for us today, in 2020, there are very few of us who actually know what healthy plants actually look like anymore. There aren't very many of us who have observed peas with leaves the size of our hand. There aren't very many of us who have picked sweet corn from a plant that had six ears on it. And yet, this is the genetic potential that all of these plants have. We can produce significantly higher yields and much higher quality than what we have come to think of as being normal. Because what is normal today is plants that aren't healthy, that are susceptible to disease. It's, it would be the equivalent of, sadly, we have a generation growing up in America today who will perceive obesity as being normal because it's common. It's something that most people, it, it's, I forget what the numbers are right now, but like 30, I think 30 or 35% of the U.S. population is on the edge of obesity. And so now that becomes defined as the new normal because it's what's common. And we live in an environment right now where our crops for the last six or seven decades have been trending towards the equivalent of intense obesity. They are chronically ill. They're chronically sick. And we think that this is normal, but this is in fact not normal. And with what you shared, it makes me think of the divide often within the knowledge of permaculture practitioners, because so much of what you speak of are things that we've been exposed to or reading about or engaged in really since like the 1970s, at least with the work of like Masanabu Fukuoka and the natural farmer, much of his writing is talking about many of these ideas. We have all the different options with like silvopasture and raising animals in woodlands and all of these different options that for this community seems so straightforward, but we've been practicing it mostly on such a small scale. And with what you're sharing and the work that you've been doing, I see it as this place where we can kind of, as permaculture practitioners, bridge this knowledge and point to your work and similar in how we can take this to a much larger scale, that we can be regenerating soil on the millions of acres rather than just in tens of thousands of backyards. I believe 
implementing these ideas on scale is an imperative. And it is our responsibility for those of us who have been exposed to these ideas, who have this knowledge and information, it is our responsibility to share that in a manner that is accessible to the people who are responsible for this large-scale agriculture. And this is, I think, where we have either perhaps unconsciously and not deliberately, but we have created this division and this divide where many people who are in the permaculture or organic agricultural community persist in constantly pointing out the things that are bad in large-scale production agriculture. And there are many of them. And uh, I'm not in favor or an advocate of many of these practices of pesticide use and genetic modified organisms and the list kind of goes on and on of things that uh, we wish were different in broad scale production agriculture. But here's the deal. We don't help anyone by constantly emphasizing the things that are wrong with this model. We don't convert anyone to changing things and beginning to farm differently on their thousand acre farm by constantly focusing on what is wrong. Our job needs to be, as I said earlier, to inspire the imagination. The one mantra that I use for myself quite frequently is that we need to provide inspiration to the point of action. It is much more powerful to be for something than it is to be against something. And so when we communicate a message of possibility, a message of opportunity, a message of hope, where we can describe for them how they can regenerate soil, how they can grow crops that are resistant to diseases and insects, how they can reduce pesticide use and reduce fertilizers and inputs and be more successful and make more money and be more profitable using by managing nutrition differently and by managing biology differently, this is a message that can inspire people to begin changing. 10 years ago, or maybe not quite that long, seven or eight years ago, when Don Huber and Michael McNeil and others were first beginning to widely share the decades of prior research on the challenges of glyphosate in the ecosystem. I spent a couple of years at conferences. I spoke quite a bit about the challenges of glyphosate and the impact that it has on human health and ecosystem health and so forth. And I deliberately chose to discontinue talking about glyphosate because it is not useful to produce the type of change that we want to see in the ecosystem. And I think this is where it's very important if we want to, we can't change the world by only preaching to the choir. We have to gain the converts of these farmers who are managing thousands or tens of thousands of acres of farmland. And so to do so, we must meet them where they are. And in reality, when you have conversations with them one-on-one, -on -one, it should not be difficult to meet them where they are because they all care. They care about the land. They care about the quality of the food that they are producing. And when you focus on the things on which you agree, you will find that there are many on which you agree and very few on which you disagree. There might be some, but when you focus on those things that you agree on and begin building on those, you now can establish a foundation where you can produce tremendous change in a relationship and in a farming operation. And I'll share one example, one story of this. I've talked about it on several occasions already, but it's such a powerful example. We began working with a cherry farm in Oregon, and it's about 300 plus acres of cherries, very conventionally farmed, intense pesticide and fertilizer applications. And the first conversation we had with this grower, he said, 
I have no desire to be organic. I have, I don't want to have a conversation about reducing fertilizers. I have no desire to reduce pesticide applications. What I care about is producing large firm cherries that qualify for the export market. I've heard that you can help me do that. That's what I want to talk about. So that's what we had a conversation about. After working closely with this grower for several years, at the end of three years, this grower is now cover cropping all of his acres during the summer months between the tree rows. He has mulch and compost on his tree rows. He has planted various perennial plants such as comfrey and, and other perennials underneath the tree row. He is doing many biological practices. He's producing his own compost on farm. And on a scale of 370 acres, this is really significant. So at the end of three years, we had our annual review meeting and he sits in the exact same chair on the same side of the same desk and tells us that when I had my first conversation with you, I told you very specifically and very expressly that I have no desire to be organic, but I don't have powdery mildew anymore. I don't have spotted wing drosophila anymore. I don't have bacterial canker anymore. You know, if I wanted to, I could be organic. That is the conversion. Conversion doesn't happen in the land. It doesn't happen in the field. It happens between the ears. And it's not something that happens overnight because farmers have so much at risk. They're in a very risky livelihood. They're exposed to weather and insect and pest problems and everything else. They, they see all the challenges and they see everyone else getting paid before they do. And so there is a pretty incredible, a pretty high degree of risk aversion and the need to have confidence and stability in their operation financially before they are willing to make changes. So if we can guide them on this process one step at a time, one day at a time, and one year at a time, for this grower, the conversion process in this mindset took several years. For others, it might take longer. For some, it might take less. But the key is that I believe it's our responsibility as educators to really connect with people and to build on the common ground that we have and really seek to develop empathy with our growers rather than constantly antagonizing them about the things that they are doing that might be having a damaging impact on the landscape. That doesn't convert anyone. And it sounds like that conversion process is happening through a conversation about positive outcomes, not the negative internal or externalities that exist within the current agricultural process, but about how you can help lead them to something that is greater than what they have today. Yes. And very specifically, again, this is in the context of meeting people where they are. Where are many farmers today? Many farmers are very concerned about their farm's financial viability and economic viability. It's a significant concern for most producers. And in order to be a successful farm, you have to be a successful business first. But of course, it's much more than just a business. It's also their livelihood. It's their home. It's their family. It's their inheritance in many cases. And so the conversation, when I first, what really inspired me when I started down this pathway 15 years ago was the realization that we can develop agricultural ecosystems, which deliver three significant benefits. One is they regenerate plant health and produce plants that are resistant to diseases and insects, and we can eliminate the need for pesticides. That point I found to be really inspiring. Additionally, I found it also inspiring that when we grow these plants that have these functional immune systems and are resistant to diseases and insects, 
they can also transfer this immunity to the people who consume this food or to the livestock. And we can have a legitimate conversation about growing food as medicine. Third, when we have these really healthy plants growing in an ecosystem, they sequester carbon and we can build soil organic matter and soil health and sequester carbon to a much more rapid degree than what is believed to be common. And when you consider that agriculture today is the source of many ecosystem and environmental challenges that we have in the world from nitrate pollution and dead zones in uh, estuaries and at the mouths of rivers and so forth, Agriculture today is a source. We export globally 75 billion tons of topsoil per year into the oceans. And instead of being a source of problems, agriculture can be the solution for those problems. We can mitigate climate change. We can sequester tremendous amounts of carbon. We can restore hydrological cycles. There are so many positive things that agriculture can contribute to ecosystems and the environment that are necessary, that are needed, that are an imperative in our world today. And I became inspired by the potential for agriculture to shift from a net negative, I shouldn't perhaps call it a net negative because obviously it's producing a lot of food, but from an ecosystems and environmental perspective, from a net negative to a net positive. And this is really what sent me down the pathway. If we can accomplish these three things, then we can have a tremendous impact on the future of this planet and of all of our cultures and populations. I soon learned, though, that I was not effective in producing change when talking to farmers and communicating this message because farmers care about improving the land and the landscape. Farmers care about producing healthy food, and they care about not contributing negatively to the environment. They care about reduced pest pressure, but not enough. They didn't care enough to change the way that they were farming because they carried such significant economic risk. That outweighed the desire to do good. It was more of a feel-good conversation. Yes, this is awesome. I would love to do all these things, but how can I do that and pay my bills? So today, our marketing message in our work at Advancing Eco-Agriculture is not about these benefits. These are all secondary and they're a result. Instead, the conversation we have with growers is that we can help you make more money and be more financially successful, be more profitable by managing plant nutrition differently than the way you are managing it today. That's it. That's what we talk about. We, we begin managing plant nutrition differently. And when we begin managing plant nutrition differently, and of course, I'm, I'm emphasizing plant nutrition, but also focusing on biology, of course, then disease and insect resistance and producing food as medicine and regenerating ecosystems, those are all outcomes. Those happen naturally, automatically on these farming operations. As you continue to change that story and those outcomes, for someone who is interested in everything that you've shared with us so far today, in addition to your book, Quality Agriculture, which is currently available, would you have any suggestions for anyone who's on the land of where they could get started? And also for people who are not on the land, but want to advocate for these kinds of changes, do you have any suggestions? We live in a very different landscape and a very different information landscape for farmers 
and for people in agriculture than we did when I first started 15 years ago. Today, we, we, uh, there's almost an overwhelming am- amount of resources. The challenge sometimes is finding the resources that, are, that answer the questions that you have. So I would certainly, this is obviously my work of passion, and so selfishly, I would uh, invite people to look at my website, johnkempf.com, and please subscribe to my blog where I send out five days a week a short post on regenerative agriculture agronomy and how to manage farming and agriculture a bit differently, how to manage nutrition differently, if you will. And then also there are many organizations now that I'm sure many of you are aware of with, for example, Kiss the Ground and Farmer's Footprint. And the list kind of goes on and on of different organizations that we can contribute to. And then for deep agronomy knowledge and learning, I host a webinar or teach a webinar series that is available on the Advancing Eco-Agriculture YouTube channel, as well as my podcast where I have a lot of fun. And uh, the podcast that I've produced has been a really incredible experience. The reason I started was because when I started down this pathway 15 years ago, I soon realized that there's a great deal of really valuable and useful information that has been written down, but there is much more that has not been written down and that is really scattered all over the place in people's heads and people's minds and experiences that they've had. And my desire with the podcast was to have some of these conversations and draw out some of this experience and knowledge and make it more readily accessible and available. And so I would highly recommend that people check out the podcast, uh, not because I'm the host, but because I've had some amazing guests who say some of the most incredible things. And that's, uh, I have a lot of fun with that for sure. And in the little bit of time that we have remaining, do you have any final thoughts for the listeners? That could go in many different directions, but um, I think as I've, as I've been on this pathway for the last decade and a half, I've realized that if we want to produce change on a significant scale, then producing that change has very little to do with technical knowledge. I would go so far to say as it has almost nothing to do with technical knowledge. So we can have deep permaculture knowledge. We can have deep agronomic knowledge and plant nutrition knowledge, but that isn't really what produces change. Our capacity to produce change is going to be directly proportionate to our capacity to feel empathy for the growers and the people we are seeking to change. And this reminds me, one of my favorite quotes is from Otto Scharmer at MIT, who developed Theory U. Paraphrasing it, he said that he studied leadership and what allows some leaders to be very effective at producing significant long-term change within organizations. And his work, I think I can summarize a great deal of his work with this one quote where he says that the outcome of an intervention has nothing to do with the skills or the knowledge of the intervener. It has everything to do with the place within from which the intervener comes. And when we think about that coming from that place within, coming from a place of empathy and love and a desire to support and help other people, people sense that right away. And that is really what allows and opens the door to change. When I I looked recently at at our historical podcast interviews for the last couple of years and tried to identify what are the common themes between the interviews that are really popular and that people really appreciated. 
And I was surprised by what emerged. I shouldn't have been surprised because given what I just said, it should have been obvious. But there were a few episodes where uh, the one that comes to mind, I think, as a good example of this was uh, one of the episodes with Michael McNeil. So Michael is this very kindly grandfatherly agronomist with 50 years of experience in Iowa uh, as an agronomist for mainstream corn and soybean producers. And in the interview, he used some very blunt language and sentences, such as stop poisoning your land. He made these statements that, depending on who would have said them, would have really annoyed and irritated a lot of people. And that's stating it mildly. But the episode with Michael McNeil was one of our most popular episodes. It was widely shared. It produced a lot of conversations in the agricultural community. Why that reaction instead of a reaction of people being pissed off about it? I believe the reason for that reaction is that people could tell minutes into the conversation that Michael cared deeply about them. He cared deeply about their farming operations. He cares about his own community, the farmers that he works with. And because of that empathy and because of that level of caring, he was able to speak the truth very bluntly in a way that people may have found offensive, but they were open to hearing his message because they could sense that he cared. And so my final concluding thought for all of us would be that if we desire to produce change in the world, the degree of change that we'll be successful in producing is going to be in direct proportion to how well we can feel that caring in our hearts and how well we can communicate that effectively. Well, thank you for that, John, and everything else you shared with us today and for joining me for an episode of the Permaculture Podcast. Thank you for having me on, Scott. I really enjoyed our conversation. And that was John Kempf. Find out more about John, his podcast, and his new book, Quality Agriculture, at johnkempf.com. John's results represent what permaculture practitioners can achieve on a broad scale by seeing to farmers' needs while still speaking the language of permaculture. John is doing for fruit and vegetable agriculture what folks like Alan Savory are achieving by raising animals. Permaculture folks have a fantastic number of tools in our toolkit. John extends those by providing a model for furthering our practices, whether we're interested in working directly with farmers and broad-scale agriculture, or policy and politics. We can use the research and science he's found to argue and advocate for practices and procedures that change agriculture as we know it. We can push organic and other operations further and further away from chemical use and closer to what we've known for more than 40 years. Working with nature leads to bountiful results. But those are just my thoughts at the moment. What are yours? Leave a comment in the show notes or get in touch. Email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com or call 717-827-6266. The podcast is currently running the 10th anniversary Summer to Fall fundraiser. This fundraiser has two goals. One is to update the aging computer while I edit the show. The other is to record in-person video interviews and tours of permaculture sites once we're past the COVID hurdle. You can become a sustaining member at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast, donate online at paypal.me slash permaculturepodcast, or drop something in the mail. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dolphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. Until the next time, 
spend each day caring for the soil and growing healthy plants while taking care of earth, yourself, and each other.